hay un proyecto, hay un programa de gobierno que lo vamos a ratificar cada día más porque son ustedes los que van alimentando ese, ese programa de gobierno. Welcome to our first dispatch. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja. This program will be different from the others. You'll be hearing directly from members of the Venezuela analysis team who are on the ground covering the election in the capital and surrounding region. The United Socialist Party of Venezuela secured an important victory in regional and local elections on Sunday, winning at least 19 of the 23 governorships according to initial results from the National Electoral Council, turfing right-wing incumbents in Merida, Táchira, Aswatigui amid a highly divided opposition. The 42.3% turnout was 12 points higher than December's parliamentary elections, bucking a recent downwards trend. Sunday's vote saw a wider electoral offer than on past occasions, with 111 parties running, including the U.S.-backed hard right, which returned to the ballot on the Democratic Unity Roundtable ticket. Sunday's vote was overseen by 300 international observers from 55 countries and a host of international organizations, including the Carter Center, the Latin American Council of Electoral Experts, and the European Union. Now, on to the program with Sira Pasco Marquina and Ricardo Vaz. We're going to start with Ricardo Vaz. Ricardo, we saw the State Department make a statement directly from the Secretary of State, predictable. We probably could have written it ourselves knowing what they were going to say. But there were still some surprises there. They tried to tread a line, reaffirming their support for Guaidó, blaming Maduro for the divisions. But what, what's your take on the U.S. reaction to the Venezuelan results, which we should say led to a overwhelming victory in many regards for the forces of the United Socialist Party of Venezuela? Yeah, I think predictable is the right word to describe it. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that this statement was written ahead of time and then they had to wait for, for the results to, to really know what line they were going to strike. So if I remember correctly, the, the statement said that the results were grossly skewed without really specifying you know, in what way they were skewed. They accused Maduro of uh, quote-unquote depriving the Venezuelan people of the chance to decide their future, something along along these lines. It makes it sound like Maduro was at the polling location stopping people from, from voting. Yes, uh, a few days ago there was also a, a, one of the assistant secretaries from the State Department went to a meeting of the, I think it was the Atlantic Council, and he said that in 2018 Maduro rigged an election and declared himself the victor. I mean, I imagine Maduro going to all the voting stations and voting for himself six million times. So, I mean, that, that's the things that, that we've come to expect. But as you were saying, it, it's interesting that they kind of commanded the opposition forces that did go out to participate. And this was, I mean, as, we, as we'll get into, was the broadest ballot we've had in years with the hardline opposition deciding that their boycott strategy had really gotten them nowhere. So they really had to get back to the polls. They didn't make uh, as many, uh, they didn't make much inroads in, in this contest. We'll, we'll get to analyze why. But it was significant that they decided that uh, I mean, the other strategy is not working, we need to go back to the polls. And, and as a result, the, the United States is stuck a little bit in between. Uh, I mean, if, if this opposition had gotten a much stronger result, they would have been more eager to, to endorse them. Since that wasn't the case, they are, I think, trying to decide what they're going to do next, and in particular what they're going to do with, with Guaido and this kind of parallel administration that has also really gone nowhere in, in almost three years now. Would you say that maybe this whole internato, this Guaido administration, is 
possibly now becoming a burden to the United States. It makes it difficult for them to try to achieve different means. They're, they're wedded now to this idea that, that he's the, the legitimate president, but exercises no power. You know, we had this hilariously appropriate moment where in his press conference and his, you know, improvised stage, the presidential seal, which was made of cardboard, falls down as soon as the wind blows. You know, what does that say? I think that is the perfect metaphor for, for his interim presidency. But nonetheless, it's an obstacle, right? So what, is this, what does this mean for, for Venezuelan politics vis-a-vis -vis the United States? Yeah, I think anyone who hasn't seen this video should look it up, and it shouldn't be too hard to find. As you were saying, it, it's really a perfect metaphor. You know, it's, a, it's really a cardboard presidency. And it has, it has been a burden. It has become a bit of a straitjacket for the United States. And even before Biden took office, uh, I think, there were already rumblings within the Trump administration that the, the interim government is, was not working. I mean, you you could see it when when the, the interim government was proclaimed, proclaimed or self-proclaimed in January January 2019. It was never thought of as something that was going to last a long time. It was meant to last weeks or months at most before triggering regime change. So then, as it went on, it stayed in this kind of limbo where you have this very uh, people with expensive suits pretending they're a government, but they don't, act, don't actually do anything. And then, then they become an obstacle uh, in front of people who actually wanted to run in elections, which is what we saw this time. I mean, Guaido uh, continue as if there were no elections. He didn't even tell people who to vote for, because in a way he understood that the big election win for the opposition would mean the end of his uh, parallel government. So it, it's also uh, there's also a, a dispute going on in the opposition regarding which way to go forward. I mean, there, by now there's overwhelming voices that are calling on the Biden administration to end the interim government. I mean, it's also, we should also always stress out that these decisions are taken in Washington. And I mean, they, they, they have said it publicly. I mean, these, have, these statements have gone from private and anonymous to really public and outspoken, saying that Guaido is not doing anything. He's uh, just playing, playing, playing house or playing government here. And he's just, he's just an obstacle right now. I would, add, I would add something here. Basically, the U.S., I don't think uh, the U.S. obviously is not wedded to any, uh, to any mode or to any path other than uh, overthrowing the democratically elected government. So that is its objective. Right now, I think that the problem is that they, are not, they don't have another libretto. They do not have, they have not, but I do at the same time agree with Ricardo that basically right now this is a liability for the current mode is a liability. The fact that the conversations happen, that the dialogue happened in Mexico points to the fact that they are also simultaneously looking for another path, for another solution to their problem, which is that the Venezuelan people have been exercising uh, their sovereignty. That is the problem of the United States. So, yeah, I think... Uh, the U.S. is looking for it's possibly it's possibly opting for or looking for other paths because this is the way the uh, the, the self-proclaimed government is right now a liability. And returning to domestic Venezuelan politics, and I think in many ways this is also a reflection of yet again the opposition having an incoherent strategy, and yet coincidentally, ironically, I mean also overestimating its capacity. And a lot of the things that, that the conversations that were happening around this election was a, this issue of the voter turnout. In the previous National Assembly elections just one year ago, it was approximately 30%, a historic low for Venezuelan elections, uh, but obviously impacted by the fact that the opposition once again boycotted those. They didn't boycott this one, but the vote turnout went up only by 10%, which is to say is that 10% attributable to 
the opposition. That's particularly, um, uh, I think, telling that they weren't able to to mobilize as much uh, much of their support. But what what do you think, Sierra? We'll start with you. What if, what is the implications of, of this voter turnout? Is the legitimacy of this election determined by the tr the turnout, which is the the what they were trying to propagate in mainstream media outlets? Well, first of all, I mean these were regional and local elections. So uh, at the global level, this is not a low turnout for regional for elections where you are choosing governors and uh, representatives at the local level. That is the first thing that we should clarify. Uh, the second thing is that we are not in any context, in any circumstances, that this is a project that uh, puts democracy, popular democracy, at the center. So historically, turnout has been has been high. So it is important to understand that in the Bolivarian process, actually, elections do uh, with uh, as one piece, as one of many pieces within a popular democracy participative and protagonic democracy, elections have been important. So it is actually, from a left perspective, it's something that we have to recognize as a limitation in our context. We have to examine why people are not turning to the polls, including in a situation like this one where the opposition is actually participating. Uh, so that is a reflection that we within the left have to do. On the other hand, obviously the opposition goes to the polls after three after three years, and it really doesn't get many people to go to to the polling stations either. So what is their problem? Obviously they do have a problem with the with the leadership. They don't have a project, a coherent project. They are totally they are puppets of the United States and people of the uh, people you know like normal people of the opposition know it. So that doesn't really get people motivated to vote. So I think that we have to look at several factors to understand the current situation. As I was saying, first, they are local. Second, and so the, the participation is actually on global scale, not a low. Second, um, actually, we should not be satisfied from a left perspective with this percentage. We expect, we hope, that the people will feel, and if this project goes well, the people have to be feel engaged to voting. That's what happened during the high moments of the Bolivarian Revolution. And third, the opposition is just like totally, you know, at a loss of what to do with itself. So um, that actually reflects, it, it has a reflection on the voting. So yeah, that's, in, in a few words, that's what I would say about the participation. Yeah, I, I would add that it's a, it's a positive thing that at least the trend is reversed. I mean, we had this decreasing participation and actually 30% for legislative elections last December was really a very, very low. Though, as you said in, in, in the preamble, you had most of the opposition boycotting it. And actually for us, who and, and you yourself, Jose Luis, who, you were on the ground, in the morning at least, you did get the sense that turnout was also going to be in the 30s. So it was, a given the expectations, a pleasant surprise that it surpassed 40%. I think one, one thing that we need to, to understand is that the opposition, uh, ever since they won the, the 2015 parliamentary elections, when they secured this huge majority in, in parliament, they kind of went to this all or nothing strategy, where, whether when it was just remove the government or bust. And this got even worse after the self-proclamation and the calls for either the armed forces to, to stage a coup or even you know, floating the idea of a, of, a foreign, of a foreign invasion. 
And then, you know, at some point, they just completely changed course and uh, this uh, Democratic Unity Roundtable, the, the traditional opposition coalition, decided to go back to the ticket some, I don't know, four or five months ahead. So there's, we can expect a lot of inertia from their electoral base, who for years were just, was just listening to this uh, regime change or bust discourse. So I think the, when, when, when we look at Chavismo, uh, we can see that its base, its voter base is, is very well consolidated. I mean, it's between 3.5 million and 4 million votes that they can consistently rely on. And it was really the opposition who didn't have, either they didn't have enough time and perhaps as Sir says, they didn't have enough coherence to really get their voters to believe that it was significant for them to turn out on, on Sunday. And not to mention the divisions that continue to exist. I, I, I think it's comical that they try to pin this on Maduro when literally days before you have some of the opposition coming to physical conflict amongst each other. Right? This has been historically true of the opposition, and it's understandable because there is a, a wide variety of ideological perspectives within the opposition, and there's a hard right that, that is fascist adjacent, and then you kind of have like a more centrist, some that even call themselves social democrats. And so it's, it's understandable that, that they would struggle to find unity. And even if, uh, in this instance, uh, we don't want to make the mistake that automatically all the votes are transferred to each other. But you look at the numbers, and if you add up the opposition support and you, and you add up the, the, the Chavista support, there's more for the opposition. Nonetheless, what was the hashtag that was trending right after the results? Chavismo arrasó, right? So we had the situation where, you know, the overwhelming victory for the Chavista forces. What does that mean in terms of the context of this election? I think we can analyze it again from this all or nothing perspective that the hardline opposition sectors were pushing, is that as they gradually marginalized themselves from the electoral game, other actors started to come forward and, and try to fill in this gap. I think it was Francisco Rodriguez, who is one of the, he's an, an economist and one of the analysts who is always paying a lot of attention to Venezuela, he added up the votes from the three main opposition forces here. So the MUD coalition, this new alliance called the Democratic Alliance, and another new force called Fuerza Vecinal, Neighborhood Force. And if they had chosen a single candidate uh, across the board and assuming that the votes were automatically transferable, which is uh, it's a bit of a leap, but let's assume that, then they would have won, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think 10 more states. So it would really have meant a, a completely different picture. But the issue is that uh, perhaps you, uh, readers in, in the United States who only get access to the mainstream media do not have this perspective. The, the media was kind of stuck to this idea that there was only one opposition in, in Venezuela. And once this opposition started to boycott elections, you had, for example, Fuerza Vecinal, neighborhood force, kind of rebranded a sector of, of, of these boycotting forces to Keep, keep some of the strongholds that they had, for example, the, the municipalities here in, in East Caracas. So now the, the, the MUD returns and somehow it expected automatic loyalty from everybody else and that was not the case. So we had in, in, many, in many instances some very ugly episodes. I mean, there was one case where one candidate slapped another right in front of the European Union observers, which was perhaps a bit extreme, but you had others where Opposition candidates actually spent most of the campaign uh, fighting each other and accusing each, each other of being a government agent and so on. So in the end, uh, with very few exceptions, they could not agree on, on, on unified candidates to really challenge the government in, in these elections. 
So basically, yeah, I agree with what Ricardo has to say. And coming back to your question, which is what does this mean for Chavismo? Well, uh, obviously, this is for the, for institutional Chavismo. This is no doubt a victory. Um, for popular Chavismo, this is also good because it allows for spaces to continue building. They are, they are and we should recognize it contradictions between certain sectors of popular Chavismo and institutionality, but of course popular Chavismo hopes to continue to build with the government that is Chavista. So uh, I think it's overall uh, a good situation for, uh, for Chavismo, yeah. But nonetheless, we do know that it wasn't a total victory for the forces of Chavismo, no? the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. And to that I mean there was very important potential losses. We, you know, at the time of this recording, we still don't have the official results, but it looks like they may have lost Barinas, which is a, a key stronghold. Uh, Sur del Lago also. What are the reasons from, from your point of view that can help us understand why maybe this happens and how does that connect to the broader situation, right, of Venezuela dealing with uh, the situation of, of sanctions, dealing with the fact that the objective conditions are, are forcing the government to, to take a more pragmatic turn, which is obviously accommodating itself to the interests of capital and, and, and large landowners. Well, yeah, I mean, basically, this is actually very surprising because Chavismo, the stronghold of Chavismo has always been the rural areas. In the rural areas, we would never, I mean, Chavismo would never lose. So uh, the possibility of losing Barinas and Sur del Lago and other areas that have been lost, the other states that have been lost, they are actually rural states. So. Here we are entering into a space of speculation, but it's actually important speculation. Why have we lost? Why has Chavismo lost in these areas? Well, uh, as it turns out, in these places, um, there are, as you were pointing out, Jose Luis, in these areas, in these regions, there is a reorganization of the uh, uh, of the agrarian organization of production. With Chavez, uh, there was, as everybody who hears, who hears this probably knows, there was a tremendously important land reform that favored campesinos, landless campesinos, and uh, lands that were not being in, that were not in use could be taken over by the campesinos so that they would bring them back to production. And it's worth reminding our, our listeners that it was these land laws that really started to put the conflict onto the big picture right absolutely. onto the screen right? absolutely and they eventually led uh, the 2001 law uh, eventually led to the 2002 coup so basically this has been the vocation of the bolivarian process the vocation of the bolivarian process when it comes to the rural areas has been very popular with a, a profoundly radical land reform in recent years we could say in the two three four uh, past years, there's been a, a new mode of operation from the government in relation to the agrarian areas. There's been a big, they've been turning large plots of land to, to private uh, agro-industrial, a new emerging agro-industrial bourgeoisie. And of course, the people on the ground have actually been displaced from uh, the land in several places, including, for instance, in Sur del Lago and in Barinas. And uh, so, as I was saying before, this we are we are speculating here, but I think we are speculating from from a commitment to the process and from looking at what's really going on on these territories. Why are people rejecting them? Well, 
one of the factors most likely is that one. Of course, there's everywhere there's, I mean, like we are in the periphery and in the global north, it happens too. There are problems with uh, corruption, with bad administration, and those issues I'm sure have uh, an impact on those results too. Um, but I would say that uh, from a left perspective, it would be worth looking at this reorganization of the agrarian policies of the Bolivarian process. Yeah, just, just to stress, I mean, I'm sure most listeners will, will know this, but the significance of Barinas, which at the time, of, at the time we're recording, is still not, does, still doesn't, does not have its final results. Barinas is the home state of Chavez, and it was always, I mean, I'm sure it was the last state that people expected the opposition to win, and of course this win is still not confirmed, but we are kind of operating under that assumption. And yeah, I'm going to repeat a bit what Cyrus said. I mean, we're also at Venezuela Analysis, we've also been in touch constantly with, with campesino movements and they have denounced, I mean, in their words, a landowner offensive that has led to eviction, it has led to violence, it has led to targeted killings even, as well as uh, lots of cases of, of campesinos getting arrested and having judicial processes thrown, thrown on them to, to stop them from, stop their activism. And in many cases, we have, when, when we start to investigate and, and campesinos protest, they often reach the conclusion that somehow it's impossible to move forward because these land-owning interests are very close either to the local government or the regional government or other state institutions. And as I was saying, we, we have been close to, to campesino movements and this has been one of the areas in which the contradictions have really exploded in, in recent years. And one of the things that we have come to understand, and, and they, the, the campesino leaders have explained, is that many times it's impossible to move forward with the struggle because these landowning interests are very close to the local government or, or the regional government and so on. So I think it was a case where the government overestimated uh, or took for granted that this campesino base was going to, to stay there. And that's why we had this very surprising result that they lost the state of Cojeres. Uh, we're assuming the state of Barinas. It was very close in Apure, which is also a state in uh, a very agricultural state. And as Cyril was saying before, the, the Sulia state was lost, and specifically these uh, very rural areas in, in, in Sur del Lago. So uh, I think it might be a case where the, this pragmatic approach, as you were saying, that the government has taken amidst the sanctions where it has come to accommodate other interests in favor of you know continuity and, and trying to, to stabilize the economy uh, in, the, in the current conditions, it, it has backfired in the sense that it has called into question this campesino support, which historically had always been there. But even here in, in the rural areas, while we're on the topic, there there's also a lot of room for hope. And we have a close relationship with the communards from El Maizal, and we know that one of the leaders from that community, Angel Prado, managed to, with struggle, with, with, with effort, to become the candidate for the United Socialist Party of Venezuela for the municipality there, and won, it looks like. So that's pretty significant in the sense that it's, it's a space where we're going to see a coming together of the grassroots popular power, these expressions of, of the masses organized politically with the, the bourgeois liberal institutions. And so it could, if successful, really maybe chart a new course. So I'd be interesting to hear what you think about this, Sierra, about the situation of Angel Prado winning 
and, and what it could mean for the reorganization of the popular power in Venezuela in the context of the bourgeois state. So yeah, Angel Prado uh, won the race for the major the major ship in Simon Planas, which is a rural area uh, in Lara State. And but in there, in that area, the most important uh, popular space of organization that's really a referent for all Venezuelans who are committed to the communal past, the 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 commune uh, Comunal Maizal has been a, it has been a referent globally i would say even and uh, some four years ago in the in the local elections angel prado run on a we could say on an independent ticket actually it was a pkt uh, ticket and he won but uh, he was also uh, a representative uh, that's not the right word but he was also at the national assembly so he was not allowed to assume uh, basically the space that he had won through the vote. Uh, in these elections, the interesting thing is that these elections in the PCV, there were internal primary elections, and this led to Angel Prado and basically the Common Arts launching Angel Prado as the candidate for the Alcaldía, for the, for the local uh, government. And he won. So this is actually an expression of popular power, and we could even say that is at the local level a correction of some bureaucratic tendencies that had imposed itself uh, locally. Uh, we can see the correction within the PCV when Angel Prado is allowed to actually run and to succeed at uh, winning this space. The, the election has, has been a very intense uh, election and basically Angel Prado and the Communards have been running I would say more than on the PCV ticket, on the ticket of the commune, right? So on the ticket of organizing from below and building new forms of organization and uh, pointing towards the organization of the communal city and including even the communal state. So this is actually a great success and it's a, a space of uh, where revolutionaries and Chavistas who are committed to the communes we hold a, a very dear this space and we really hope that this will be an important referent that will allow to correct other spaces where tendencies that are more bureaucratic and less committed to the communes are dominating the political spheres. And, and while we're on the topic of these tensions that exist within the left, they exist here in Venezuela as they exist anywhere in the world, this uh, election was also unique in the sense that we had this left of PSUV block, the APR. but. I would, I would wager that it's safe to say that they're, they're probably disappointed with the results. And so I'd be interesting to hear from, from both of you what you think about the, the results for the, for the APR. Did they, did they overestimate their capacity? I was talking to a friend of mine here in Venezuela and he was saying, I used to always vote for the communist ticket because they were part of the Gran Polo Patriotico, the, the government coalition. And it was a ways of me saying, I support the government, I'm sympathetic, but I also have criticisms. They left. And now he himself said, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to vote for the APR in this instance because I know that the, what the situation demands is support for the government party. Yeah, so th this was the second time that the, the APR, the Popular Revolutionary Alternative, has run an independent ticket from the, from the Socialist Party. So they tried it first last year in December and it was uh, very disappointing. They only secured one uh, National Assembly deputy out of the, um, to 273. And this time they also fielded a complete ticket in all the country's states and municipalities. And the results, 
I mean, there's no two ways of saying it. They were very, very underwhelming. Uh, I don't believe the, the Communist Party has actually secured any municipalities. And, and we saw it coming. Uh, there are many ways to explain it. I mean, on one hand, it's undeniable that uh, this, this alliance and the Communist Party in particular has been silenced by, by state media, it has been marginalized, it had, there were also a few cases of their candidates being uh, unexplainedly thrown out of the ticket, being barred by the, the electoral authorities, so obstacles that were put in their way that go, uh, in a way, explain, explain the, the poor results. But at the same time, I think it's safe to say by now that this, this project has not succeeded, I mean, and it requires, I mean, we're very close to these people as well, and they're very committed, and, and we admire them a lot. But I, I don't think the strategy has worked. I mean, even though the Communist Party is close to, to rural movements, it's close to trade unions, it has not managed to do enough grassroots work to really present itself as an alternative. And so to go under these conditions straight to the ballot uh, is, is not going to work. I mean, you, you can't just proclaim that you're an alternative without doing the grassroots work. And, and this work is necessary, right? I mean, there needs to be a push from the left to kind of correct or you know, force the, the ruling party and the government to reorient because, I mean, these contradictions are there, this class struggle is there. But the APR has not managed to do that. And, and so far, the, most of the opposition is still from sectors like the communards that Cyril was just talking about, who are still within this very large and perhaps... Uh, blurred umbrella of, of, of the Socialist Party. So we, we, we have to see, perhaps now that the electoral uh, fever is over, there can be a kind of a greater return to, to the debate that was always a feature of, of Chavismo and, and there can be kind of a real discussion on, on the policies and, and where the project is going. I would say that the APR, I mean, the strength of the APR, and this is necessary in any, in any revolutionary pro process, you need uh, voices that will bring up the problems. And some of the Communist Party leaders have been doing that. And I actually sympathize with many of the criticisms. Personally, I might uh, sympathize with many of their criticisms. However, they really are not building from below. And that is what really characterizes the Bolivarian process, building from below, doing a, a different kind of politics. And they are doing the, they are involved in the old kind of like from above way of doing politics. So, um, when faced with, uh, with a party that actually really literally represents the legacy of Chavez in historical terms, because Chavez founded it, which is the PSUV, and the APR, which has criticisms of the government, but actually does not have grassroots, nor really a program about how to uh, overcome the current problems in Venezuela, then, I mean, their vote has been, has been tremendously low. I mean, it's like 2% maybe at the national level. It's really actually very pathetic. Um, so, yeah, that, that would be, you know, like I think that that's about it, that we, what we can say about the APR. So for our final point of conversation, I want to move on to implications. And for that, we actually have another guest. We have Greg Wilpert, who is somebody we're very lucky to have here. There's, there, it's probably one of the people who is most familiar with the history of the Bolivarian Revolution. He's also one of the founders of the Venezuela Analysis website. And I want to begin this conversation by making reference to our previous episode, where we talked before, before the election, and we interviewed 
Reinado Turiza, who, who talked about the, the need to, to return the center of gravity to the working class. So we'll start with you, Greg. Is there a before and an after here in Venezuela? Can you, is, is Reinaldo right to say that the center of gravity was once the working class and has now moved away from that? And, and what does that mean for Venezuelan politics in the future? Because we know that there's more elections to come and we still have the looming threat of U.S. imperialism. Well, I mean, the, uh, the beginnings, I mean, of the, uh, particularly when Chavez first introduced the idea and the concept of the communal state, that was definitely uh, a moment when uh, there was a lot of emphasis on developing the communal councils and the, and the communes, and there was a lot of energy put into that. They started forming, and this basically started, I guess, around, well, the high point perhaps was around 2006 to 2008, I would say. And um, that was really, you know, a moment when uh, people started organizing from below and started, you know, really pushing for, um, for you know, confronting the state actually as well. I mean, that's also because, you know, the state was still, uh, took a form that, you know, of very much of a top-down structure that uh, even though the government was supporting the creation of these communals, uh, uh, government um, and, and direct democracy essentially, uh, they ended up clashing, of course, with, uh, with the state structures. And I think eventually, actually, uh, especially during the crisis, you know, after Chavez's death and after uh, the oil prices started crashing, and, uh, and uh, yeah, and so I wouldn't put it all on Maduro. I mean, there was certainly a change of government, a change of orientation. I think Maduro, uh, in some ways, was uh, less in touch with, this, uh, with these grassroots movements than Chavez was. And so with that combination of factors, you know, the, the, the economic crisis, then, of course, the uh, U.S. sanctions and, and the assault from, from, from the U.S., that created a situation where the state really started winning out in this conflict, essentially, that happened between the state and the, and the grassroots movements and, and, and the creation of a communal state, which ended up falling behind, I think, um, in, the, in the long run. Uh, and um, now, it, it, with regard to uh, Itoriza's hope that this might be, represent now a, a reorientation of before and after, of course, I think that's you know I think that's perhaps uh, you know his hopeful thinking. I you know the, these these factors that led to the state's predominance, so to speak, in this in this fight, uh, haven't disappeared. <laughs> the economic crisis remains. The effort of the opposition to overthrow the government by means of subversion, with the support from the United States, that still remains. Uh, so things aren't back to normal by any means. Um, I, I, I do think it's a hopeful sign, though, that you know that you had on um, this galvanization from below um, that seems to be stronger than it might have been. Uh, those are things that I guess uh, uh, Ricardo and Zira could comment on more. But it seemed from a distance to me, it seems like that's uh, kind of gaining a little bit of momentum now. Whether they're going to be able to prevail in the long term, is, for me, it's way too early to say. Um, but, um, but I think it's definitely a hopeful move, moment. Uh, um, but, I, but like I said, the, the other factors that uh, had caused this, brought this crisis situation about remain, and it's unclear at, as to how they're going to be resolved. Uh, there's some hope on the uh, horizon that maybe the economic crisis can at least be mitigated to some extent now that uh, things are going a little bit better economically for some people at least, not for the majority of things. But, um, but uh, there's some economic growth happening. So, so that's one little hopeful sign, but um, still, that's not enough. There's still a long way to go. So what does this mean for, for Venezuelan politics in the future? Yeah, I would pick up from where Greg left off that 
a lot depends on on the external conditions. Uh, you know, now going back to my point about the opposition being in a kind of a conundrum of what where they go from here. We we have to see. I would expect. I mean, my my money or my imaginary money is on the Mexico dialogue resuming in in the near future, and we'll have to see what kind of posture the opposition takes there because now there are no elections expected until the twenty twenty four presidential elections, so there are question marks all around. I mean, is the opposition willing to wait this long after all these years where they it was really a very they were very impatient and wanted to topple the government immediately. And, and if so, what strategy will they adopt? Because uh, opposition leaders, as much as international, their international sponsors would like them to get together, they, are, they have been at each other's throats for, for a while now. So it's, it's far from clear that they can actually settle on a unified strategy, let alone a unified candidate. You mentioned that there, going, there likely won't be any more elections in, until 2024. Is that to say that the revocatoria, the, the and the interruption of the mandate isn't going to move forward? That, that's constitutionally, that's allowed by the constitution and lots of people on, on Twitter, for example, have floated this possibility, you know, if, the, if there are less votes from, for Chavismo than from, for everybody else, then if the opposition moves forward with this recall referendum, they might win. Still, given the, the state of, of disunity and the fact that the opposition does not have a plan, I would not expect them to to go for to go to follow this route. Of course, I mean the opposition has not been known for taking the the same choices uh, in, in, recent, in recent history. But but there are also question marks for for Chavismo because this this economic crisis is still here. I think structurally, it's going to be very hard to to resolve them uh, without significant sanctions relief. So the government will remain in, in this kind of difficult balance where they try to maintain social programs and they try to maintain their social base at all costs while also making these concessions, which we wonder to what extent they are forced by the circumstances and to what extent they really represent a kind of ideological shift. They make these concessions to, the, to capital in the hope of maintaining an equilibrium that will, one way or another, kickstart the economy and perhaps regalvanize the movement towards you know winning again in 2024 and there are also questions i mean will maduro remain is it time for another candidate to to emerge my hope personally you know since we're closing is that there can be again space for grassroots debate and for grassroots organizations to take take the helm again and just not be focused so much on this electoral contest where the kind of top-down tendencies become much more marked I'm inclined to agree. I think that's my takeaway. I think at the very least what this does is give us a little bit room to breathe, right? And to, for, for the masses to, to once again be the protagonist and be able to, to intervene. I do think that that is something that we can say about these elections. Sierra and Greg, some final closing thoughts from, from yourselves. Basically, I wanted to mention that, uh, you know, to everybody who's, who's listening to us, uh, this is a process that's complex. There are multiple forces we've seen. And of course, uh, there are there's the exercise from outside to overthrow this government. So uh, to everybody who listens, I'm sure that is committed to the sovereignty of Venezuela. And from outside, the best thing that uh, anybody can do is uh, help us to make sure that we bring an end to, to the sanctions. Of course, also uh, any kind of like internationalist solidarity with Venezuela should also be committed to the grassroots organization and that's important because there's a bit debate within the Bolivarian process and there are forces that are really committed to the 
to the communal path. That's that's actually very important and very wonderful. So that's actually a hope for many of us who are here. And uh, I think that both supporting the government in its opposition, in its uh, contradiction with the U.S. empire, is important. But also supporting the people as they are building an alternative is fundamental. And uh, yeah, basically, this is a uh, a mission that has committed to its own sovereignty. And uh, these processes, this electoral pro- this electoral process specifically, this electoral process is another instance in which the Venezuelan people have tried to to reassert it. Uh, we have a lot more to do from here, and uh, yeah, we'll continue. I don't know, reporting and thinking about what uh, we are living through in Venezuela. I just wanted to comment also on the on the revocatoria, the recall referendum possibility. I mean, when Chavez first, um, you know, when there was all of this uh, pressure on Chavez to to uh, step down or to when he was, was being challenged by the opposition constantly. Uh, he was at first very reluctant to allow a recall referendum. I mean, not that it was just up to him, but uh, it, you know. But eventually, he turned around and said, "Okay, let's let's do it. If you guys think that you know have the signatures and so on, we'll, we'll go ahead." And and they did, and they lost quite spectacularly. Um, and um, so this was what in two thousand four, if I remember. And um, I think, in a way, I, I'm inclined to think that if Maduro wanted to uh, find a way to give the uh, opposition and the, uh, let's say, the U.S. government. I mean, this is, of course, an attack on the sovereignty of, of Venezuela. And uh, on the other hand, Venezuela's economy is, is in such terrible shape. I'm just wondering, you know, how can you get out of these sanction situations? And maybe that would be a fig leaf to give to the, um, to the opposition in order to get rid of the, uh, thing, uh, the, the sanctions. Um, and... Uh, and you know what would be the scenario? Okay, it's possible that Maduro would lose that. I don't know. Uh, on the other hand, it's possible that another PSUV candidate could win the next presidential elections. Who knows? I mean, especially considering how divided the opposition is, etc. Um, now, of course, you could have a similar situation as you had with Nicaragua in 1990. That is, you know, was suffering under a civil war. Um, an election came up, and uh, the government, uh, the, the Sandinista government, uh, stepped down. But it was actually part of an agreement that they would keep, you know, that it was, or there was an understanding that, you know, the Sandinistas would remain uh, a, a powerful force in the country, uh, that they couldn't just wipe the slate clean. And this was part of an agreement, uh, or maybe not an explicit one, but a, but an implicit one. And um, you know, I could see something a similar scenario in Venezuela in the long run, or the medium term, actually. Um, that you know, the, the government has to concede something if the people are to stop suffering. Now, of course, the other path would be to to build up um, the economy from the grassroots, and you know, that would be, of course, what many people hope would happen. But it's such a slow, difficult process, and I don't know which which is going to come first. But if the government were able to step aside with a guarantee that the Chavistas will not be wiped from the face of the earth, which is, of course, what uh, the opposition and what the U.S. government would like to see. Uh, but if there was a tacit agreement that that won't happen, then they could make a stage of comeback like the Sandinistas did. Um, now, that would be one possible scenario. Uh, I'm not saying that that's the one that the government should definitely go, but uh, I think it needs to be taken into account given the amount of uh, the difficulty of the situation of the vast majority of the population at the moment. 
All right. We want to thank everybody for listening to the special episode of Dispatch live from Caracas, Venezuela, in the shadow of the 2021 local and regional elections. Thank everybody for listening. Thank you to Sira, Greg, and Ricardo for their excellent analysis. And as always, you can find our content on the website. And we are about to begin our fundraising campaign. So people listening, if you have the means to do it, please continue to support Venezuela analysis. We are 100% reader funded and supported and allows us to provide this critical perspective. Thanks again.